of the second temple and the theme of his messages was first things first building for God let us continue uh, please in in prayer as we uh, worship together our God and father we thank you that you are the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob all the prophets and people of your word you are the living and true God and Uh, You are the authority in heaven and earth. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have uh, given us your word to show us the way, to show us and encourage us in the way. And we pray this morning as we read from your words that the power of the Holy Spirit might use them in each of our hearts We thank you for each one that's here, Lord. Uh, Thank you for bringing them. Thank you for the marvelous leading of your Holy Spirit. In the worthy and precious name of Jesus, amen. Now, when you study the book of Haggai, it's, it's good really to study it in the light of the book of Ezra, which gives uh, much of the history of this period, and also the other uh, prophets Zechariah and Malachi are very important. Now Haggai uh, means festive or festal, and perhaps uh, some have suggested he was born on a feast day, uh, an occasion like that. Other than that, we don't know a whole lot about his personal history. We do know that Haggai <clears throat> came back to the land of promise from Babylon. And he came back with Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel is sometimes called Shaspazar. And uh, so you'll, you'll notice that as you read your Bible. Haggai is the first of the post-exilic prophets. In other words, when they came back from the 70 years of captivity to the land, uh, the prophet Haggai came back with Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua, the high priest at that time, uh, no doubt named for that famous uh, uh, one that followed Moses. And uh, Haggai is uh, known uh, to be a contemporary of the prophet Zechariah. So that's a longer book, and it's good to uh, read in Zechariah and uh, gain insight into the book of Haggai from Zechariah. Now, Zechariah uh, prophesied uh, along with Haggai from about 520 to about 480 B.C. So that's about 40 years of friendship and fellowship in the work of God there. Now, the situation of the returnees from Babylon was quite different. You'll remember about 50,000 came back at first and so on. There was much to discourage and and give them difficulty. Uh, They had to make a living in the land and uh, things were not easy uh, for them. They they 
had to spend a lot of time just getting food on the table and having their residences and so on. And they hoped for a better time, but it didn't seem to be ever coming along. I guess there's some people today that feel like that, you know. They hope for the future that it'll be better, and it just doesn't seem to uh, materialize right away. Now, there were also political difficulties during this time. There were enemies surrounding Jerusalem in the the areas uh, in the countryside beyond And these enemies would like to harm them and also stir up political difficulties for them. Reminds us of the church today, doesn't it? There are many enemies of God in the world, and they try to stir up all sorts of difficulties for the people of God, including political ones. But we read in Proverbs that the fear of man brings a snare. And I don't know if you've tried to witness for Christ sometimes, and for some strange reason, there is a reticence, perhaps due to the fear of man. That's a snare of the enemy to keep people from hearing the good news about Jesus. So we need to be bold in the Lord and in the power of his strength. Haggai urged the people to resume the building of the temple. Now, they had been back in the land for about 15 years and they had been they had laid a, an initial foundation of the temple and then word came down through the authorities that they were to stop and so they hadn't worked on it for not 15 years now so god raises up haggai and zechariah to cause the people to begin to build again uh, putting first things first and building in the temple of God. Now he also promised through God that if they would obey God and rebuild the temple, then material and spiritual blessings would follow. So that's sort of the setting for what we have before us uh, today. Now, interestingly, Haggai is just a short book, right? If you want to turn that, that will be our base of operations uh, for uh, our study. But it's a really, really short book. And yet uh, it covers uh, a short period of time. So I guess it's reasonable. Uh, Two months of prophecies. And the interesting thing is that uh, he dates each of the four prophecies that he gives in his book. That's, that's only here that you find uh, that, that done. And so he's uh, beginning in the year about 520 B.C., the second year of Darius I, or Darius I, whichever way you want to say it. And these four messages are what we'll be looking at uh, today along with... Uh, material from Zechariah and Malachi and a little bit from Ezra. So let's begin in, in Haggai chapter 1, uh, third from the last of the minor prophets, just before the New Testament. Verse 1, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet 
to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, and so then he goes on to, uh, God goes on to rebuke the people for neglecting the rebuilding of the temple. Now this uh, first prophecy occurred on August 29, 520 B.C. Of course, they were using the Babylonian calendar, which was unusual, but having come back from the captivity, they did that, and scholars have been able to determine that it was August 29, 520 B.C. that this word was given. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Apparently, uh, these houses were nice. There was apparently some wealthy people among the poor in the land. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And this is a command to self-judgment. Just like we come week by week to remember the Lord in preparation for that, we judge ourselves for our shortcomings and our sins so that we will not have to be chastened by the Lord. So God is interested in self-judgment. Literally, set your heart on your ways. Wow, it's a heart matter, isn't it? Set your heart on what is right and do it, God is saying. It is easy to make other priorities more important than doing God's work. But God and his work must come first. Remember Matthew 6:33, where Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So instead of making the priority, what are we going to eat, what are we going to wear, what are we going to do for a job, and so on, seek first the kingdom of God, all these things shall be added to you. God wants us to follow and pursue righteousness and build up his kingdom. And so we're talking about building in this particular book. And it's a, it's a tremendous tie-in with building in the temple of God today, which is the church, the living uh, body of Christ. Verse 6 says, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. That's a, <laughs> you put your money in your bag and it falls out through the holes in the bottom. That's quite a, quite a picture. And they were not prospering because they had not honored God the way they should their self-seeking had gotten them nowhere it had been it had brought them loss instead of gain a lot of people think you know they have to rush around and do this and that and uh, leave you know the things of God aside uh, in order to make their 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 mark or their their uh, income But God says, no, put me first. And uh, these folks, they had uh, sought their necessities were so important, they didn't have money left left over after they had 
uh, spend it all on themselves. That's not good, is it? Verse 7 says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Again, set your heart on your ways. Verse 8, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. So the, the thought here in the first message is God commands his people to go and build. This is chapter 1, 1 through 15. Build the temple. Go and build. Now, as I speak to you folks, I realize that some of you are already, already out there building, already uh, working hard at constructing uh, the projects of God and the work of God. And uh, yet in these words, we can get additional encouragement to do even more for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the, the uh, temple which he is building in this age. First, uh, notice they were to go and to collect materials, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and build the temple. Then they were commanded to build that temple. Now, in a spiritual way, followers of Jesus are also uh, to do similar things. Uh, We ask ourselves, what sort of materials am I using in my building for God? Uh, You know, there's a, a, a lot of difference in the type of material. And building in the church of Jesus Christ, the temple of God of this age, requires spiritual building materials. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 15 mentions this. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. So there, there has been a foundation that has been laid and the superstructure on that foundation needs to conform to the quality of the foundation. Those of you who know building uh, realize that this is uh, an obvious fact of life. And, G- and, and Paul says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned... It's just wooden straw. He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So we're talking about rewards and the lack of rewards here and not uh, one's uh, eternal relationship with God. Quality is what is important. The wood and hay and stubble weren't too useful. They weren't quality. But the gold, silver, and precious stones were not only is quality important but motivation seems to be really important in the eyes of God what's our motivation for doing something 
Is it really for God and for Jesus? Or is there some other motivation? And uh, the result of the quality materials and the right motivation will be a reward in that day. Now, it's really wonderful that the builders in the church, in the New Testament temple of God, are also a part of the building that they're working on. That's pretty neat, isn't it? Just like the elders are part of the team of gifted people that are helping the work of God, so any workman is a part of the building he is working on. Verse 19 of Ephesians 2 says, Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So we're part of the building that we're working on. But these folks in Haggai's time were not prospering, and the Lord tells them why that's true in verse 9. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little, and when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. They built beautiful houses, but had no time or money for the house of God. They were warned against putting their possessions and their jobs ahead of God himself. Therefore, he says in verse 10, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and the mountains on on the grain and the new wine and the oil on whatever the ground brings forth on man and livestock and on all the labor of your hand. Wow. God says, I did it. I I brought the drought to get your attention. Isn't it good if, you know, we're attentive to God without him having to bring a drought into our lives or something like that? This sort of situation was mentioned in the Mosaic Covenant regarding disobedience, uh, Deuteronomy 28, 23 through 24. And remember, they were under the Mosaic Covenant at that time. And he says... And your heavens, which are over your head, shall be bronze, and the earth, which is under you, shall be iron. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So uh, they had done wrong, and they were being rebuked for it. Verse 12 says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And and the people feared the presence of the Lord. The response, they had the right response. They heard 
and obeyed. And that's always the, the, the first and primary step in coming to personal revival in one's life, to hear the word of God, to obey the word of God. They showed reverence for the Lord. Notice the people feared the presence of the Lord. They had reverence. Now that's uh, a quality that's often lacking today, reverence for the Lord. And uh, we, uh, many, many true Christians need to repent of not having uh, a reverence for the, the presence of the Lord and the things of the Lord. Then God gives assurance to his people in verse 13. It says, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger. Now, it's interesting. Uh, only of Haggai is this phrase used. It's true of other prophets, but he's called the Lord's messenger. And he spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Clearly, their repentance had been genuine. And because of that, the Lord grants a great blessing, his own presence. I am with you, says the Lord. The Lord's presence, of course, included uh, his help and his protection uh, so that they would not need to be overcome by fear, as we talked about earlier. Verse 14, the spirit of the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. So it wasn't just the leaders that were involved. Everyone was stirred by the spirit of God, and their spirits were in turn uh, stirred up to do God's work. That's an important principle. Philippians 2 tells us, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So uh, that's one of the great blessings of the presence of God. Uh, He stirs us up to will and to do of his good pleasure. So what can we gain from this? If God gives you some special task to do, don't be afraid to get started. And if you have a little hesitancy about it, remember God will help you complete it. And God is going to use other people to encourage you along the way. We've just had some folks go out from uh, here at at, uh, One Hope Church and uh, to do certain works for God. And uh, we've been able to encourage them in what God has called them to do. And that's a great blessing for any church. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And he gives it in the 15th day, the day they started work. On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. So that would be September 21, 520 B.C. that they started this work. Now the book of Ezra gives us the events from a historical perspective. In chapter 5, 1 and 2, it says, Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah the son of Idu, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. 
So there was a collaboration among the leaders and a willingness to, to pitch in among the other people of the land. And they started work. Now, there had been 23 days from the first prophecy in verse 1 and 2 and so on. And now they begin work. What were they doing? Well, apparently they were planning. They were gathering those materials from the mountains that we talked about. And also, remember, it was the time of harvest, the harvest of figs and grapes and pomegranates. So they had to spend some time bringing in that harvest. Now, the second point, the second message is that God supports his people with his own presence. We've always seen a hint of that in the previous. This is chapter 2, 1 through 9. It says in verse 1, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, here again, the date of the prophecy was October 17th, 520 B.C. It was the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And there was a, nearly a month after the people had, re, had resumed rebuilding the temple. Now, <clears throat> they were working kind of slow, right? But got to remember that they had to clean up from years of rubble and things that uh, were at the site. And there were numerous festivals in the seventh month. So uh, they got a slow start, but now God is supporting them with his own presence and giving a word of encouragement through the prophet. So the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. And uh, we're going to read just about what that word was. It says, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? Now, this temple in its former glory refers back to Solomon's temple, which was pretty awesome. And it reminds us, this temple, former glory, it reminds us that in God's, from God's point of view, there's only one temple in Jerusalem, only one. The second temple is really uh, a, a phase of the first temple. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, when 500 years later, when Zerubbabel's temple was uh, torn down uh, by Herod, right down to the foundations and rebuilt, it was considered still by the Jews to be the second temple. It wasn't you know, considered a third temple or anything like that. So there's one temple of God in Jerusalem, and that will take various forms at various times of history. And God tells us that there is going to be a millennial temple as well, which will uh, uh, continue to be uh, the same uh, in in the future. Now, he says, he asks a question, God asks a question, and how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? Now, this is the kind of attitude that uh, 14 years later, the people had who, who laid the first foundation for this second temple who were involved in Ezra chapter 3. 
the young, younger generation thought, hey, this is really, really great. But the older generation, those uh, maybe 74 and, uh, and above, had seen the previous temple, Solomon's temple, and they uh, were weeping because of it, because of the contrast between the two buildings. I guess that should teach us not to be people that compare uh, lots of things. Uh, Now, with the foundation of the temple now finished successfully, the temple itself would be uh, completed and finished successfully. Uh, The Lord promises to complete what he has started. He that has begun a good work in you will complete it under the day of Jesus Christ. And we read about this temple completion in Zechariah 4, 6 through 10. I'll just read some of that. Uh, He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by, by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? In other words, these were mountainous obstacles that would be in the way. Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. The capstone of the temple would mean uh, the finishing of the temple. Then the word of the Lord says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand shall also finish it. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me, that is, sent me to you, the angel, which in this case is the angel of the Lord or or Christ, as in many instances in the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, God tells him to be strong. The Lord wants his servants to be strong. Now, be strong, he says, Zerubbabel, and be strong, Joshua, and uh, be strong, all the people of the land, says the Lord, and work, and I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. So that's exactly the prescription God gives us for, for us today, isn't it? To be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, to really work in God's temple today in the church and to be adding to it, you need to preach the true gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. There are many false gospels in the world, but uh, God gives us the essence of the true gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you and which also you received and in which you stand and by which also you are saved. Now he goes on to say the content of the gospel message. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. These things were prophesied about in the Old Testament. The Old Old Testament scriptures. And that he was buried. Okay, that's the second element. Now why put his burial in there? Well, it shows his death for one thing. You don't bury live people. And that his death was historical And that it was final. It was done. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. 
So the death, burial, and resurrection, the death for our sins done publicly uh, there and outside of Jerusalem, and he was buried. It was historical, a historical fact, and he rose again the third day, uh, shown to be alive by many infallible proofs, uh, as we read in the book of Acts. The Lord Jesus promises his special presence for his followers today. Remember Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus is given all authority, commands to make disciples, discipling them and teaching them all things. And he says, I am with you always. So uh, there is that special presence that we have today as we go about doing that great commission. And uh, that should be an encouragement and comfort to to each one that uh, seeks to do that. Then uh, in chapter uh, 2, verse 5, it says, uh, My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Again, the presence of God is uh, supporting them. And this is true, it says, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. So my spirit remains among you, do not fear. So the participle there indicates the spirit was still abiding with them in spite of failures, in spite of sins, in spite of all the trouble they got into with the Lord. There was a basic fact that God was still working among those people by his spirit. And this truth is uh, stressed in Zechariah 4.6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by, by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Then the Lord gives them an encouraging prophecy of the end times. You know, prophecy is very useful uh, when you're, uh, you know, you're stuck in this uh, routine of things in this life. You can look ahead to the final victory. We know the last chapter. And God has reserved the, the best for the future. And, you know, it takes faith to discern that. Faith, almost equivalent to hope in this case. So looking ahead uh, with confidence in what God has promised he will do. Now, the Jews were encouraged to continue the work on the temple by the assurance that the Lord, the God of nations, would in a a certain amount of time bring his infinite power to bear in overturning the kingdoms of this world and thus preparing for the setting up of Messiah's kingdom, which would endure. So Haggai speaks of this great overturning in preparation for Messiah's kingdom. Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, it is a little while, remember, not immediate, but imminent future action here. In a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. Remember the author of Hebrews uh, in chapter 12 talks about, Don't refuse him who speaks on earth, uh, or, you you know, it, they did refuse him and Moses, and they were judged. But uh, yet once more, he says, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. 
Now this once more indicates the removal of those things which are being shaken as of things which are made and the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So after the Lord's shaking of the heavens and earth and all nations, we have this phrase, and the the desire or treasure of all nations. Verse 7b says, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. What is the desire of all nations? That's an interesting phrase. Chimdath kol hagoim the desire of all nations. Uh, it has really three, three possibilities. One is personal, that this is the one desired by all nations, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is coming again. And uh, the word chimdath can be translated desire or wealth. So that brings us to the, the next view. It's impersonal. The desirable thing or collective is the treasures, the wealth of all nations that are going to be brought to the temple. Uh, This would play out in verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. So that works with the plural Hebrew verb and the fact that the nations do bring their treasures to adorn adorn the temple, as in uh, verse Eight and also uh, Isaiah 60 and Zechariah 14. And then there's a combination of the two, personal and impersonal. And one scholar has written, perhaps Haggai deliberately selected a term that had exactly the ambiguity he wanted in order to include both an impersonal and personal reference. So I'll let you uh, cogitate on that, and we'll go on to the next one, which verse 7 says, And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now again, you have a translation problem a little bit. Not a problem, but it's just a, a variation. The, the verse we read in the New King James says the glory of this latter temple. But uh, we've already seen from verse 3 that this, this building is, is tied in with the first temple. And so the New American Standard Version says the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And I think that's correct from verse 3. It's the glory that will be even greater. They were sad because the glory seemed less. But God says, I'm going to make it greater. And uh, that, that's a tremendous thing. And we'll see, I think, a little bit about how uh, God does that in the next verses. The greater glory is due, at least indirectly, to the fact that Messiah will come to his temple in the time of his first advent and his second advent. Now, both advents are found in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. 
the first verse speaks of Christ's first advent, and then you have the prophecy of the two messengers, uh, John the Baptist and Jesus the Messiah. And then chapter 3 ends with a question, remember, uh, where is the God of judgment? The answer follows. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, that's John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me, that is, God speaking, or Jesus Christ, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so that certainly is a, a, a point of glory for this. And, of course, Jesus came to that uh, uh, temple, which was re, re, refined and refurbished and built greater and bigger by Herod the Great, so-called great. He was not a great man. He was an evil man. But uh, that's what they call him. Behold, Jesus is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, Malachi 4, verses 2 through 4, ultimately looks past the first advent to the second coming of Christ as the judge. It says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. So the second coming of Christ is also going to come to the temple, to the sons of Levi, to purify that they might offer a uh, righteous offering. Zechariah 3, 8 through 10 uh, is another great uh, passage where Joshua is as the high priest and his companions are seen as a sign. It says, uh, they are a wondrous sign. Chapter 3, verse 8. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch, the branch or shoot, now, God's servant speaks of Christ's prophetic ministry, his perfect obedience, and his atoning sacrifice. And it's, there's apparently a stone there, and upon the stone are seven eyes. Now, seven eyes uh, in this prophetic uh, wording speak of the fullness of knowledge. Seven is the number of completeness. Eyes uh, gain knowledge. So he says, I, I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So he's speaking of the future. This is a future and messianic predictions. In that day, so, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Now these are millennial conditions of prosperity and peace where no one would bother them anymore. Now, Zechariah 6 makes Joshua, the high priest, a sign or type of Jesus Christ by a prophetic symbolism 
that is inherent in the action of crowning him. Now, I'll try to wrap it up pretty quickly here, but uh, Zechariah 6, 9 through 14 speaks of the messianic priest king. Now, if you remember from your Bible that in the Old Testament, the kings were never, never, never to take the responsibility of the priests. And so these two offices were kept completely separate on pain of awful things happening. So uh, this particular prophecy is astonishing from that background. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, uh, receive the gifts, gift from the captives, and these men bring silver and gold. Make an elaborate crown, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man. Now, remember who said that years and years later? Behold the man. Pilate said that of Jesus, didn't he? When he was coming before him for trial. Behold the man. Now, the Targum, the Jewish paraphrase of this verse, it's the Aramaic translation and paraphrase of it, says, quote, Behold the man. Messiah is his name, who is to be revealed. So, uh, tremendous messianic passage. It says, Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And so, with the the thought here, you have a connection uh, of the branch or shoot coming out, of the Davidic ancestry of Messiah shows his humble origin and yet at the same time his royal dignity. And in verse uh, uh, in, in, in Jeremiah, the 33rd chapter, it says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and in that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, those messianic future days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she, that is Jerusalem, will be called the Lord our righteousness. Wow, great days are coming for Jerusalem. Can't say that today. You couldn't say that before. But uh, after the Lord returns, there will be the Lord, our righteousness, in Jerusalem. Now, continuing with the Zechariah 6 passage, with the crowns and all, it says, He shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and sit and rule on his throne. So verse 12 has said this. Now it's repeated. It's so shocking that the priest will be on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be be between them both. In other words, there's no longer this barrier between priesthood and kingship, but they are united in the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest and eternal king. Then... uh, The Lord promises his own special blessing. Uh, We'll have to go uh, through rather quickly. Do we have a few more minutes? 
Okay. So undoubtedly, the greater glory which Haggai looked forward to included the millennial temple, as in Ezekiel 40 through 48, and Messiah's reign as a priest upon his throne. So uh, then we come to chapter 2, 10 through 19. God promises his own special blessing. And again, uh, the date of the prophecy is, is mentioned, this third, third message. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the date of the prophecy would be December 18, 520 B.C., two months after the previous message. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, the law of Moses. Two distinct questions are asked about the law. First, in verse 12, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. So it's a matter of cause and effect here. It will not become holy. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will he be unclean? Will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Again, it's a matter of cause and effect. The one did not have uh, the cause effect, this one uh, does in a negative way. Now, what's he saying here? It can be illustrated by a man who uh, has a sick child. A healthy man has a sick child. He can't communicate his health to his sick child. But on the other hand, the sick child may con- communicate the, his disease to his uh, to to his parent. So uh, that's the thought. You can transmit the sickness by touch, but you can't transmit holiness. The application follows, verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. So is every work of their hands. They were diseased spiritually. They were polluted. So the every work of their hands... And what they offer is unclean. Whatever they touched was unclean. So in disobedience, even their sacrifices were profane, unacceptable to God. Now, isn't this the case with many, many a person who thinks that they are uh, doing something for God and they don't even know the Lord. They don't even have the... This, the spiritual reality of Christ in their hearts. And so whatever they do is not acceptable. But it's also a, 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 an exhortation to us that our lives be clean and pure and holy as we do the holy things of God, that they would be acceptable to the Lord. Zechariah 3 speaks of the cleansing and reinstatement of the priesthood. So we come from this place of being unacceptable to being acceptable. Now we're going to see that Joshua is here in an official and representative position. 
we find that because it's not just personal. The emphasis is on his being high priest. And the rebuke that's given to Satan is, is not just uh, something that concerns Joshua as a person. And the cleansing of Joshua, the high priest, prefigures the removal of the iniquity of the land. So this is a representative kind of thing. If Joshua is cleared, the nation is cleared. If Joshua is rejected, the nation is rejected from priestly service. So the Lord himself introduces the vision. And the high priest is standing before the angel of the Lord, kind of in in a priestly service kind of thing, and is also the situation of a courtroom. So in chapter 3 of Zechariah, we read, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel, that is, the angel of the Lord, or the Lord himself. Uh, This is not just an ordinary angel. The Lord's command implies, one, forgiveness, two, acceptance, three, restoration, and four, privilege. Notice, take away the filthy garments from him, the Lord says. See, I've removed your iniquity from you and will clothe you with rich robes. Now, isn't that a wonderful thought when you think about uh, getting saved and your iniquity taken away in a moment and being clothed with the the clothes of righteousness of Jesus Christ. Wow, it just reminds me of that. But, uh, well, this is, of course, a little different topic. Let them put a clean turban on his head. And the angel of the Lord stood by, and he was admonished and so on. And so there is the cleansing of the, not only Joshua the high priest, but the land and the people. And now carefully consider from this day forward. Set your heart on it, he says again. From before the stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. And when he came to the vine fat to draw out 50 baths, there were but 20. In other words... The days before, the grain had decreased by 50%. The grape harvest had decreased by 60%. But he says, I struck you with blight or blasting wind, mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands. Yet you did not turn to me. Again, God was trying to get their attention. So much better to listen ahead. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the temples, a Lord's temple was laid, consider it. The Lord then promises blessing. He says, uh, I'll read a different version. Is there any seed left in the barn? Do the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree still yield nothing? From this day on, I will bless you. Again, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added. So we have then God assuring them that uh, he would bless them and bring things to a conclusion. Now, 
you know, the temple was eventually finished. Ezra 6 tells us about it. And it took them about five years. A lot of times we read and we don't realize the span of time in the Bible things that we're reading about. It took them about five years. But they celebrated the decoration. I mean, excuse me. They celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Then he assures his people by the greatness of his program. And I'll just finish by reading that. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month saying, again, this is December 18th, 520 BC. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne, that is singular, of kingdoms, perhaps an allusion to the uh, throne of Satan. And I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. And I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, the horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Now, they were living in a state of humiliation in a sense. The sovereign Persian empire was over them. But one day that would change, he's saying. And so the Lord makes that promise to Zerubbabel that he'd be with him and things would become complete, but an even greater promise for the future of his people. In that day, it says in verse 23, that's the, the future messianic time, says the Lord of hosts. I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I'll make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, a signal, signet ring is a seal of royal authority or personal ownership. And so the last verse of Haggai, we see Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a representative of the Davidic line. His name is found in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew and Luke. And Jesus Christ, then, is uh, the son of David, but also the son of Zerubbabel. And what we have here is the glorious future of the Davidic throne being implied, as it says in Luke chapter 1, 32 and 33. And Zerubbabel is here a type and prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, who will reign. So Haggai's last words are the Lord of hosts, and it will take the great and almighty power of the Lord of hosts to fulfill every one of these promises and prophecies. Today, our Lord Jesus Christ is building his church among all nations, and we have a part in that building project. In a coming day, Jesus Christ will establish his millennial kingdom among all nations. So we're right now planning the church among all nations, One day he's going to come back and rule over all nations. Let's uh, take a moment to give thanks. Our Father, we pause to thank you for the greatness of your glory. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the, the brightness of your glory and the express image of your nature who upholds all things by the word of his power and who after he had 
paid for our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We thank you that we can celebrate that today and look forward to a coming day when he will return to earth to set up his kingdom. Thank you that we are part of that kingdom today as we have uh, come in through the door of faith and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. We thank you for this simple feast of fellowship, the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup. Thank you that Jesus instituted this to remind us of himself and of his great work for us and of the great blessings and futures we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you in his worthy and precious name.